In 2016, scientists on Earth detected a fast radio burst from a distant region of space with no observable SARS. The following transmissions were declassified by the scientific community and given to us to present as the Binary Saga. Log entry, Vela 99, Vela Rotat 2722, cycle 8 of the 6th Annual. Hey, hey, CJ. Thank you so much for your kind words about Mom's passing. It really touched all of us to hear about all of the wonderful ceremonies and remembrances that happened for Mom on Haimavina. I know she wouldn't want anyone to make a fuss over her life, but at the same time, I'm sure that she would have loved all of the attention. It also warms my heart to know that she was celebrated as much there as she was on Vela. One of the things that has taken a long time to get used to here is the differences between our lifetimes and longevity. Your conversation with Nikki really struck me. I think it's something that many of us ponder on Vela. Since we have become so accustomed to working and living alongside our Haimovina counterparts, the outlook that I have started to take has been that all we can do is live our best lives for as long as we have them. When there is an opportunity to make your mark, be it on society or even just being a part of someone else's life, you should always take the chance and do it. Our lifespans may be shorter and eventually everyone passes, but the memory of us will live on forever in one way or another. I loved hearing about Vera and her speech to the Samcoma. Her words were truly moving and I can really see why she and my mom got along so well. It's like they both had the same goals in life, which is to bring people together and make everyone's lives better. Vera's speech was inspiring, and I hope that it rang true with members across the Empire. While I know that being from another planet doesn't amount much to Mana Society, if Vera does get nominated for the speaker position, she can count on my vote. Could you imagine the swing that Vela would have on any election there? Having a whole planet full of aliens would go a long way to really stick it to those traditionalists. Please send along my congratulations to Callista on her pairing. I will be sure to smuggle some Kelta in a shipment there so she can perform a true pairing ceremony. This way she can solidify her relationship while they decide when they want to do their wedding ceremony. I have to admit that I wasn't expecting her to be the first to enter any kind of engagement. My coolets were on Astra and Galen, but I'm happy for her regardless. I know that she's still quite young by pairing standards in the Alithian system. Are they going to follow in your footsteps and plan for a long engagement? When I was describing the situation there with Ragna to Aaron, she said that she went through much the same thing when she was growing up. Aaron wasn't quite sure what she really wanted to focus on when she was in her early classes. She obviously had a gift for systems and coding, but she was also interested in so many other hobbies and careers. Would you believe that she almost ended up becoming a wildlife veterinarian? Seriously, she was in love with sea life and always wanted to look for a way to help them. Which, now that I think about it, is how she knew so much about the Bukya when she took me to that beach so long ago. 
She said that one of the main reasons she went back to coding was because it wasn't good to get seasick while you're treating animals. Erin wanted me to pass along to Ragna that she should listen to her mom and enjoy her youth and not feel any pressure to pick any one thing to pursue. Her life will unfold as she lives it. Well, after so many rotats of monitoring, analysis, and investigation, we finally have some solid information from this facility. CJ, are you sitting down? I assume that you are, but just in case, you may need to find some place where you can really brace for what I am about to send you. Seriously. If you're out at some fika and thinking you could just listen quickly and go back to chatting with Mari about the latest crazy stunt that Nikki is doing, I urge you to pause here and go home. The SI finally finished translating all of the language from signs and documentation that was left in the facility. And we were able to figure out that the main control room acted as some sort of monitoring station. I know that's weird in its own right. Someone watching us all the time is really creepy. What makes it all that much worse is how old this facility is. It's really old. Like, really, really old. We were able to date some objects to the multiple hundreds of thousands of rotats. You may remember the different rooms that we found inside here. Well, one of them had some strange pod-like modules that we have determined are like a sleeping chamber for whoever worked here. Except that instead of sleeping, they went into some sort of hibernation that allowed them to sleep for a few thousand rotats if needed. Unfortunately, almost all of the technology behind such an ingenious invention has been destroyed beyond even the chance of analyzing. Not that we could have understood what we were looking at in the first place. Our engineers have been poring over anything they find and report back that the basis of what makes this technology work is so far beyond anything we could ever understand, and that whatever they did when they left has rendered it about as useful as some of Navi's rocks she keeps on her desk. The only working system in the entire facility was some sort of power generation that I believe came from the gravitational spin of the asteroid we were on, which was enough to power the doors, lights, and a single computer system that looked like it may have been rigged up and hidden in a haphazardly way. On that one system was a series of log files that now has many on the crew questioning our very existence as we all currently know it. Whoever it is that worked in this facility established it, to our best guess, so long ago that Vela may have been in its earliest stages of evolution. Like we were still tiny fish in the sea, or even before that. It's really hard to correlate the date system they used in the logs as they kept referring to something called a home world. And there was a set of timestamps that bounced back and forth between this station and whatever that point of origin was. We have deciphered that they used spins for our cycles, lunar cycles for our annuals, 
and orbits instead of rotats. It looks like someone went through a lot of trouble to erase a large portion of the logs, but then someone else went through an equal amount of trouble to maintain other logs. Our engineers going over everything in the system really caused much more confusion. I'm attaching a selection of the logs here because I really just need someone from an outside perspective to help me understand all of this. I will fill you in on what the council thinks about it all afterwards. I would advise that you try and keep all of this information to yourself. I am sure that the council will create an announcement for Haimavina soon once they process everything that has happened. Okay, deep breath. Here we go. Spin 12, lunar cycle 0, orbit 0. Homeworld, spin 34, lunar cycle 13, orbit 76E, 12,581. Phileto, official log. Homeworld's special integration scientists departed this spin. As was expected, the process was kept secret. We arrived after they'd done everything on Project G63127. Life is small, but it is thriving. Current cryo-chamber time will be set to 100 orbits asleep, 6 lunar cycles awake. Nerovi's on base. Phileto and Pese Dinia. Spin 12. Lunar cycle 0. Orbit 1. Homeworld, spin 34, lunar cycle 13, orbit 76E, 12,582. Phileto, personal log. So we were instructed, along with our sentence, that we were to keep professional logs as well as personal ones. Apparently, annotating our personal feelings about things isn't considered professional, but they still want it for research. We were told our logs wouldn't be used against us in any court system and would be classified until 100 orbits after our eventual deaths. I don't know about Pese Denia, Pay for short, but I was sent here from La Havan. We have a language in common, but our own dialect makes some of the conversations pretty hilarious. We were instructed to sleep within the lunar cycle, but Pei and I decided we'd take some time getting to know one another first and sleep then. I was sent here for bartering food and resources at unreasonable prices. La Havan is a world of peaceful trading. There is no one currency as I've seen on other planets, but rather a skilled trade system. I was unsatisfied with the normal expected amounts and wanted more luxury. The unfairness typically resulted in a lengthy imprisonment, but given the general hatred felt towards me by most of the people in my city, I was volunteered for this position. I'm basically an outcast. I was told I could return after I'd served my time, but no one told me how long that would be. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 0, Orbit 1. Pesadania, Personal Log. Fai's quite talkative, more than I thought he would be for a convicted criminal, but I guess it was his smooth talking that got him in trouble in the first place. Unlike Levon, Dolanade did not send me because I was in trouble with the law. 
I'm a graduate of our most prestigious university. Out of 3,000 candidates that applied for the position, I was elected to come on this journey. It was considered a great honor among our people to be chosen. We have three backups that will replace me if I should need to return home before my time is up. I'm to stay for 500 orbits. I'm fascinated to be a part of this. The chance to see life evolve from nearly nothing would allow me to build upon a number of studies I've done. The best I can come up with when trying to understand this is that our planet, Vela, the place that I have called my home for my whole life and all of my school lives and breathes on, appears to be some sort of experiment in genetic breeding. Scientists were sent to plant the seeds of life on a planet and then watch it evolve. There are references to something called integration once a planet reaches a certain stage. I'm not sure what that means, but I have some general guesses. More on that later. It looks like those who worked on the station were either volunteers or possibly even sent there to work off a punishment for crimes committed. Could you imagine being sentenced to work on a remote station, watching a planet evolve over so long that everyone you knew and would know have died? And the older Hymavenans thought that a death penalty was rough. <laughs> Anyways, continuing. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 8, Orbit 400. Pasadena, official log. Cryo seems to have malfunctioned. We were asleep for 300 orbits instead of 100. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 8, Orbit 400. Pasadena, official log. Update, homeworld seems to have taken over. We are to sleep for 500 orbits instead of 100. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 8, Orbit 400, Pasadena, official log. Flora and fauna have grown. Some have changed shape. Air sampling seems to be encouraging. Water sample is encouraging. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 8, Orbit 400, Pasadena, personal log. If I took one look outside, a trip to the communications room, and went back to sleep. His call seems to have been short. I guess he didn't get the news he wanted. When I tried to ask, he ignored me. Spin 5, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 401, Pasadena, official log. I finally finished documenting all of the changes. They're attached to this log entry in detail, returning to Cryo. Spin 9, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 903, Pasadena, official log. Relief arrived hours after I woke from cryo, showing them around this spin. I'll be returning next lunar cycle. Spin 9, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 903, Lemothylia, official log. Reporting from Palparole. Spin 10, Lunar Cycle 5, Orbit 903, Pasadena, Personal Log. 
I knew what I was getting into when I signed up for this mission, but going home is going to be hard. My friends and family are going to be well-aged at this point, and I've had so few transmissions or calls from them since I left. Worst part is, I'm coming back with no signs of aging due to the cryo. And on top of it all, I stayed for an extra 400 orbits. I should have left when I had the chance, but it's too late now. Spin 10, Lunar Cycle 5, Orbit 903, Phileto, Personal. I woke up, and Pei was gone. Someone new in her place. They call themselves Limo. They don't talk much, and when they do, their accent is very thick. The planet is still boring. When I tried to call to get confirmation on my return date, they told me I wasn't going anywhere. My family wouldn't vouch for me, and my friends have abandoned me. I'm alone. I'm to stay here until I age, which, with cryo, could take a very long time. Spin 9, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 903, Lemothylia, Official Log. Vi and I are going to cryo for 5,000 orbits. It looks like they cycled through a number of different people during the course of their so-called monitoring on this station. I can only imagine how terrible it must have been during the early days of this assignment. You would have to watch a planet and note any changes, but then go to sleep for a few hundred or thousand rotats to get up and do it again. I guess this cryo they referred to must be the easiest way for them to fast forward through all the boring bits. The next logs are where we started recognizing some events and correlating them to known events on Vela, which means that it starts getting really weird and creepy from this point on. Spin 10, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 5286, Dana Rane, Official Log. Awoke from cryo to investigate an anomaly with Project Planet's moon. Engineered computative sentience, or X, analysis has confirmed a degraded orbit for the moon in orbit of planet G63127. Potential for catastrophic failure estimated in less than a thousand orbits. Planet is already showing signs of lunar decay activity. Storms and sea level changes have been logged. Contacting Homeworld for further instruction. Raw data attached. Spin 10, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 5286. Dana Rane. Ugh, I hate that. Why did they use my full name? Dana. Personal log. Woke up Limo because we have a serious situation. I can't believe the homeworld didn't notice that the moon above the planet was in a slow decaying orbit before now. The X must have missed this on initial evaluation. If we don't hear back from them soon, the whole project may be scrubbed because there won't be a planet anymore. I don't know what to do. So much work will be down the pipe if this fails. Limo and I have basically dedicated our lives to helping this planet integrate. They won't say it out loud, but I know they're feeling the same way. Spin 10, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 5286, Lemothylia, Personal Log. Feels like I just went into cryo. 
Dana woke me up because of some anomaly with the planet's moon. I checked ECS, or X, and sure enough, the moon is 15 nibs closer than it was just 1500 orbits ago. I know that doesn't sound like much, but it, when it comes to planetary objects, even that little bit can cause a disaster. She already sent word to Homeworld. Hopefully she didn't sound too distressed. Spin 22, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 5286, Lemothylia, Official Log. Instructions from Homeworld came back. Deployment of probes with charges and additional support of high-energy cutters has been authorized to divide the moon into two pieces. This would adjust the sections into two stable orbits. It's believed that the society noted on the planet is still in an early enough stage that this would seem like a natural occurrence. Spin 22, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 5286, Lemothylia, Personal Log. Zetna. Homeworld must be insane. They want us to blow up the moon. I have never heard of this in any other project. We told them that the species is sentient now, but they don't care. They don't want to lose any of the data. Hmm. In the other bubble, this gives us the chance to observe how a society reacts to seeing their single moon become two moons. Now that I think about it, this could be fascinating. This may be our chance to insert ourselves into their mythos without revealing our presence. Dana is all kinds of excited. I think she just wants to blow something up. Spin 22, Lunar Cycle 3. Orbit 5286. Dana. Personal log. I get to blow up a moon! Spin 12. Lunar Cycle 4. Orbit 5286. Lemothylia. Official log. Bifurcation of the moon above G63127 is complete. Two smaller moon-like rocks now stable in orbit. X has confirmed that the operation was successful. Observation of the inhabitants will commence for the next 1,000 orbits to ensure that no long-term impact to development has occurred. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 5286. Dana, personal log. I may have accomplished the greatest thing I have ever done. How many Nerovi do you know who can say they blew up a planet? Yes, it was just a moon, but still. I don't usually dream while in cryo, but I want to replay it over and over in my head again. I even caught Limo cracking a smile when the charges went off. <laughs> Once we send the report to Homeworld, we're headed back to sleep. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 5286, Dana. Official log. Returning to cryo. I think it's obvious to mention that Navi was keenly interested in the above log series. She spent rotates of her life trying to discover the cause of what happened to Chona and Chone, and never once did we even consider that it could have been split in two by some all-powerful race of aliens. Yes, yes, I know that you and I joked about some of the conspiracies in that way, but I never thought that it could all have been real. These people saved us, CJ. 
We were doomed to have Cho crash into the planet and destroy everything. Granted, they were saving an experiment that they started, but still. It became apparent in some of the next logs that they also were aware of Hymavina as well. While they knew of the existence of your planet, it looks like they weren't that interested in it. Aside from the interaction that Hymavina had with Vela, they appeared just as random log entries. Spin 15, lunar cycle 9, orbit 49980, Lumothylia official log. Cryo was set to 100,000 orbits, but alarms went off and we awoke early. Neighboring planet in the binary system was apparently not uninhabited as first imagined. While living in frozen water is almost impossible for Nerovi, it is not impossible for others. Details attached. Investigating. Spin 16, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 49981, Lemothylia, Official Log. Investigation complete. See attached files for raw data. The binary planet is advanced enough for space travel. Initial probes sent by the planet crashed into Project Planet. The planet's gravitational pull and technology of the satellite was too strong for the original orbiting wards to prevent the tech from entering the atmosphere. Dana Rane and I have been working steadily to recalibrate and expand on the protective warding to maintain the integrity of the experiment. New wards will scramble and redirect alien technology automatically when entering a certain radius. If that fails, another perimeter is set to wake us immediately so that we can rest control before they get too close. Spin 8, Lunar Cycle 3, Orbit 49982, Lemothylia, Official Log. Returning to Cryo for 300 orbits. Spin 3, Lunar Cycle 10, Orbit 50200, Dana, Official Log. Awoken to alarms, alien ship seems to have passed through advanced wards. Arrested control of the ship, but it was damaged. It crashed on a nearby planet inside the project system. Integrity of the project planet maintained. Spin 17, Lunar Cycle 1, Orbit 50210, Dana, Official Log. All seems to be quiet now, returning to cryo, waking again in a thousand orbits. Like I said, it seems like they weren't worried about Hymavina unless it came to an interference with Velen progression. The key point here is that this completely explains where the anomaly comes from and why it was instituted in the first place. It was created to keep anything away from contaminating Velen growth. It also appears that it was created in a way to keep anyone else away from Vela without causing any harm. They were able to see the initial probe that Hymavina sent and the original Crimson Sun. From what we could tell, they were trying to send anything back to where it came from, but the state of the Crimson Sun was such that they couldn't. Since the vessel was damaged, or as we understand not completely operational, 
they didn't have a choice but to redirect it to Fenora. Spin 3, Lunar Cycle 1, Orbit 52440, Lemothylia, Official Log. Awoken to alarms, signals seem to be transmitting between the Frozen Planet and Project Planet. Details attached. Project Planet species have grown significantly in intelligence since the last incident. The Frozen Planet calls themselves Hymavina, will be referred to as such henceforth. Spin 12, Lunar Cycle 9, Orbit 52483, Lemothylia, Official Log. Added as many delaying tactics as I could to the transmissions. I am unable to completely cut off the signals as they are using an archaic form of communication that I haven't seen before. Request for aid sent to Homeworld. Spin 15, Lunar Cycle 11, Orbit 52497, Lemothylia, Official Log. Homeworld declined aid. We are to allow the communication, but monitor very closely. They advised that we are to stay on nine lunar cycle cryo-rotations. We are to overlap three of the lunar cycle with one another so that we are only ever alone for three lunar cycles at a time. Spin 9, Lunar Cycle 6, Orbit 52546, Dana, Personal Log. They have allowed children to begin speaking to one another on the planets. Honestly, it's adorable. I know we probably shouldn't do it, but I'm going to work with Limo and have Velen inscribed on the entryway to this facility. I'm getting a bit attached to the goings-on of the planet below. I want them to feel welcome when they inevitably find us. I can't wait to meet them. Maybe in the next hundred or so orbits we'll be able to. Sadly, I know these children specifically won't be around, but it's still exciting. Now we start getting into the really weird stuff. These monitors were listening in when Vela started its communication with Haimavina. It didn't seem to matter if we had added any sort of encryption or not. These people saw everything. These are the logs that Aaron was most interested in. The early stuff was all simple observations of development. But here is when we were starting to turn into a more active society that was interested in travel outside of our own system. Aaron has been diving into this integration thing and trying to understand it a little better. Spin 11, Lunar Cycle 5, Orbit 52563, Lumothelia, Official Log. Velen seem to have their eye on the sky and are very interested in seeing beyond their planet. Hope for integration is high. Spin 26, Lunar Cycle 7, Orbit 52564, Dana, Official Log. Homeworld has instructed that we are to prevent as much interstellar travel as possible from the planet as the social and political climates are not right for integration at this time. Spin 20, Lunar Cycle 1, Orbit 52565, Dana, Personal Log. Honestly, I'm really upset. 
Lima and I have been on this ship for tens of thousands of orbits at this point. We've watched this planet grow from a small, wild thing to expansive cities and complex social customs. Their amphibious lifestyle is exactly what the entire point of this mission is, but we're told we're supposed to force them to stay on their planet because the politics aren't right? Spin 16, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 52566, Lemothylia, Personal Log. I am in disagreement with Homeworld. I think Vela would be a great choice for integration. I worry what the Hymovenians will have to say about it, but I do not think Vela would pass on the opportunity to have their technology advance so greatly. More talk of integration. Aaron has speculated that many of these workers all came from different planets. She said that it could be similar to the Mana Empire, in that you have a series of planets that are all part of a single collective. Some of the planets involved here could be organically discovered, while others may have been bred to fulfill a specific function. I don't even want to think about what the overall plan for Vela could have been. Were we being bred to be some sort of workers in their empire? Next, we get into something that I recognize a little more personally. Most of the logs we have seen were all from our own ancient history, but now we have caught up to something a little more recent. These people are the reason that I nearly died in the CS1 and the cause of the interference with the CS2 and 3. Spin 21, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 52663, Lumothylia, Official Log. Crewed ship attempted to launch and went further than expected. We tampered with the ship just a little, but their version of engineered computative sentience, X, was incompatible with ours and caused a nearly fatal crash. Spin 22, Lunar Cycle 11, Orbit 52671, Lumothylia, Official Log. Uncrewed ship attempted a launch, arrested control of the space around the ship, and transported the entire craft to what the villains call Key. Resulted in a failure. Reporting to Homeworld. Spin 14, Lunar Cycle 5, Orbit 52680. Dana, official log. Crewed ship, surprisingly with the same determined pilot as the first attempt. X attempted to interface with their computer system. Their version, what we now know to be called SI, or Synthetic Intelligence, interfaced very poorly with our redirection and channeled the teleportation technology from X. We managed to divert the ship near a high-density gravity field that warped space-time attempting proper coordination with SI and reprogramming. Spin 18, Lunar Cycle 7, Orbit 52682, Lemothylia, Official Log. Reconfiguration complete. X is now SI compatible and will interface accordingly going forward. Information is updated in the database. Returned the ship home after two orbits had passed on Vela, though the occupant would have only felt a few lunar cycles of time passage. 
all of the work that I put in for building out the CS projects. And these people were actively working against Vela trying to achieve interstellar travel. This was something that I would have thought they wanted us to do. I nearly died because of their interference in the natural progression of our planet. To them, it was just another variable in their experiment. The next few logs appear to be someone working inside the facility that may have been more on our side when it came to this homeworld interjection and decision to shut down their project. It would seem that someone thought to help us out when it was decided that we were no longer worthy of integration. Spin 13, Lunar Cycle 4, Orbit 52696, Lumothylia, Official Log. Another attempt at interstellar travel occurred. Our integration of X with SI may have backfired as their system is now able to compensate for our wards and bypass commands sent to redirect or assume control. The Velen ship was able to travel unhindered. This could be the beginning of integration candidacy. It is much earlier than expected. Homeworld has sent a delegate directly. They will be arriving in three spins. Spin 25. Lunar Cycle 7. Orbit 52696. Anaxaren. Official Log. Project G63127, locally known as Vela, has come a very long way in a very short amount of time. After close inspection, during the last few lunar cycles, they do not meet the criteria for integration at this time. We are collecting the data on their life extension procedure and preparing to depart, then leaving the station behind. We are disabling everything inside the facility to avoid evidence of involvement. Spin 26, Lunar Cycle 7, Orbit 52696. Dana, Personal Log. Enixaren is something. I've never met someone from Homeworld directly. He's so serious in all business, though. Even Limo is more chill than he is. They want us to abandon the Velens and let them fend for themselves. I, I don't like it. He wants us to completely shut down and turn off the ship, destroy and decommission the ship's data. He already uploaded everything to Homeworld earlier this spin. Limo and I have a plan, but we have to wait to execute it. Spin 3, Lunar Cycle 8, Orbit 52696. Dana, Personal Log. Alright, I don't have a lot of time and my Velen is terrible, but here goes. <coughs> and Xeran has left and ordered the ship be shut down. But I'm not doing that. He left last night. He said he'd be cutting communications to the ship when he returned. On our end, we've deleted and destroyed all communications and signals going towards the ship. But Limo and I lied about deleting the data. We left the important data for you and some historical facts you might find interesting. I'm sorry it's come to this, and I'm sorry we can't be here when you find the place. We both wanted to meet you and welcome you to the integration. Unfortunately, all the technology has been deconstructed aside from this one lone X server. Once we step through the teleportation ring to get home, 
you won't be able to use that anymore either. We can't wait for you to successfully launch either. Our movements are monitored. Just know you have a pair of friends on Paparole. X is set up to interface with your SI as best as we can. May the stars watch over you and guide you home. Dana and Limo, over and out. Spin 3, Lunar Cycle 8, Orbit 52696, Dana, personal. Also, sorry we blew up your moon. It was for a good cause, we promise. This is where all of the logs in the system stop, and we are left with far more questions than we have answers for. It was at this point that everything in the facility was completely shut down and rendered inert. Even the systems that power the ward, which is what we were referring to as the anomaly, are all decommissioned. We couldn't turn it back on if we tried. Computer systems and overall base power are all destroyed. We even had to bring in a hydrosplitter to provide life support inside the facility while we were working there. The elevator we came down in works as an airlock with no trouble, powered off what is left in the systems, but that's it. There are still a few personal items spread around. There was some clothing and a few old paper-bound books that were in a language that was so far different from what the SI was able to translate that we have no idea what they say. I guess it's understandable since people were living here for so long and it appears that they left in a hurry. What we haven't found is any reference or information about this homeworld or where they might be located. All of that information is just gone. So that leads us to where we are now. A dead facility in our solar system that used to be inhabited by a group of people that were watching our every move as we evolved from sea-based creatures into a spacefaring society that is seeking to travel to other star systems. Now we have the knowledge that we aren't even a natural evolution, but instead a science experiment of beings that were kept under a microscope for our entire existence and made to be part of some greater race of beings. Except that we didn't meet their criteria and were cast away like chum over the side of a skiff. Needless to say, the council is losing their scales over all this. I am so glad that mom isn't around to see what has become of this investigation. It goes way beyond what anyone ever thought up or even speculated about. There has been nothing but arguments inside the council chambers, and I am glad that I am still out here on the edge of the system and that I don't have to sit in the room with them. Of course, I'm still on various calls for the sessions, but at least I can mute my terminal input so they don't have to hear me groaning. The biggest concern about all of this is the general announcement to the wider public of our findings. Every one of the crew here knows what's going on and has been sworn to secrecy in releasing information to the wider Velen community. I reread the disclaimers that they had us agree to a few times to make sure that I would not be breaking any extreme rules in telling you what I have. 
there's a loophole that allows counsel in a time of mental anguish for crew members to seek out guidance from outside sources. I just didn't tell them that my outside source happens to be on a different planet. If this information were to get out to the rest of Vela, we could potentially see an outbreak of worldwide panic. This calls to question everything we know about our existence. The fact that we are just some sort of experiment means that nothing we knew about our history is to be trusted. Of course, it also means that those purists that were all Vela first are clueless when it comes to our origins. CJ, when this comes to shore, people are going to freak out. I am sure that the council will be trying to figure out some sort of formal announcement to the Samcoma, if for nothing else than to let them know that the anomaly is shut down for good and that we have evidence of it being destroyed, disassembled, or rendered inert, I guess. I don't know what the final edited announcement will be, since they are still arguing over every last log that we have found. I sent you some of the raw logs because I just thought you should know. Aaron and I have been discussing this at length, and much like the rest of the crew, we are keeping the information from some of the younger kids on the Huata and the other vessels. The problem, of course, is that Nasu is really smart. Even at her age, she knows that something's going on. The entire crew is acting differently than normal. Oh, CJ. I'm not even sure who I am anymore. May the waves guide us all. Jason, 69. Log Entry, Hymavina 99, 2404, Age of Radiance. Hey Jason, it means so much to me that you would trust me enough to keep your confidence about what was found at Key. I would have never guessed that another alien race created the felons. I'm not sure if I'm shocked or impressed. Motives notwithstanding, they did get to observe an entire species evolve. And there's something very beautiful if you step back and think about it. From the logs you played for me, it does sound like some of these monitors did develop empathy for your race and wanted to see you succeed. But then again, we know better than anyone that it can be hard to interpret true intent behind a message without knowing the person. These same empathetic people suppress the Velen's natural curiosity to explore by keeping you in a cage, if you will. It also sounds like we mana inadvertently help free the Velens from further experimentation. I guess that's something. It will take some time to process. And yes, I agree with you that some people might freak out, as this information is heavy. But I do know that people are resilient and can overcome anything. Remember back in school when we learned about those first messages the Velen and Mana sent to each other? And how excited they were to learn that they were not alone in this huge universe. I mean, that was even way before Grandma Iria and Papa Gisto's time. Think of how far both races have come. And that is why I know both races will get through this too. The universe is a big place, and we should not be shocked by anything anymore. If you were wondering, 
with the exception of the message where you took me through the abandoned laboratory, Bjorn does not watch your messages. I keep him up to date on what's going on with you and your school, but he knows that our messages are private. That said, um, I hope you don't mind, but I did allow him to watch your most recent message because even I needed to talk to someone about what was found. You can trust him to keep your confidence. He's very good at keeping secrets. After we watched your message, we talked a lot about the discovery and had a deep discussion about our beliefs and how a society can overcome an existential crisis. Bjorn told me that the Lithians, as a population, generally felt guilty about the Hymavina discovery. However, if you asked a Veronian, most were resentful towards the other planets because the discovery proved again that their Yothian ancestors were left to die on yet another harsh world. He thinks the Veronians will be the most supportive towards the Velans because they felt cast out too. I told him that we Hymavenans had no idea who we really were for almost 2,000 years. We made up myths and legends based on half-truths, and most of the time we were wrong. I explained the ancient lander and how both races worked together to discover our shared past, which is really the beginning of our kinship. We talked about the arrival of the Lithians, Hymavenan anxiety and resentment, and the sense that we couldn't trust our own history. It is a work in progress, but we still came together as an empire. And we agreed that if we knew anything about the Velens, it's that you will overcome this revelation and come together as a society too. At one point in our discussion, a smug smile stretched across Bjorn's face. He gloated that he and his father were right that the anomaly was constructed to shield the Velens from outside interference. This, of course, led to his usual lecture about how all creatures have the potential to evolve into sentient life, and therefore, we needed to continue to a strict vegetarian diet. <laughs> He's incorrigible. <laughs> well, maybe if these homeworld people return someday, they will see you as equals as we do, and not an abandoned experiment. The Samcoma held a press conference on the anomaly. They played a short vid from Prime Representative Leo Saitoma, who mentioned the anomaly was destroyed. As you can imagine, the reporters bombarded the press secretary with questions. He responded that there were no further details beyond the vid, and that he was happy to play the message again. <laughs> he said that we should be patient with the Velens, the same way they were patient with us. After that, he pivoted to the new trade agreement on textiles and consumer products that was finally settled. Ugh. He mentioned that everything will still flow through Tanga Station because the process was working smoothly and had created many new Mana and Velen jobs. Finally, he announced several academic conferences and symposiums to be held at the station later that year. While not much information was given, it was a very encouraging press conference. I think when the Velen Council does reveal the findings of the discovery, the reaction will be met with open hearts and understanding. Much of this new attitude can be attributed to the outcome of our recent election. The Samcoma election occurred a few weeks after I sent you my last message. Despite Grandma Vera's moving speech, the polls still favored the traditionalists due to the massive populations on Ganama and Alondra and their historic support for the party. During those last few weeks, 
candidates squeezed out final endorsements from prominent people or interest groups. House corporations are a favorite endorsement, and we are always bombarded with requests and invitations. I can barely go out in public because, without fail, a candidate would accidentally run into me long enough for a photographer to snap a photo that implies a House Jorgensen endorsement. The worst offender this election cycle actually showed up at one of Nikki's robotics tournaments. I could not believe the nerve of this woman, and I was not my usual polite self. She got the message and sent my office a formal apology. Another favorite way to campaign is to make their rounds on comedic talk shows. The hosts usually toss easy questions to the candidates, like they do with an actor or a musician. Then one evening after Nikki went to bed, I was searching for something to watch. Bjorn reminded me that Oli was going to be a guest on The Meeting Stone. The Meeting Stone is a satirical political talk show with a small panel of guests who discuss current events. The show was filmed in front of a live audience on Alondra. The discussions are always lively and jovial, but most politicians avoid going on the show because they're afraid of the host, Landon Kadri. Landon may be a comedian, but he is as sharp as an ice pick. Oli was not up for re-election, so he agreed to be a guest along with an actor and a traditionalist-leaning political commentator. Landon opened his program with a hilarious but politically charged monologue, then welcomed his three-guest panel. He started off the discussion with light-hearted topics and even congratulated Oli on his recent marriage to his longtime girlfriend, Elsa. But once the political discussion got going, it was clear Landon was not expecting Oli to be a formidable match. When the political commentator challenged him on an issue, Oli easily pivoted and systematically took apart his argument, all with a smile. At one point, I actually felt bad for the actor, who was clearly there just to promote her film, <laughs> because she could not keep up. Once the topic of the election started, I could tell this was where Landon wanted to catch Oli. Oli is a leader in the Alithian Alliance Party, but steered clear of their usual talking points and instead spoke plainly and honestly. Even the political commentator stopped trying to argue and listened to Oli. At the end of the show, Landon gave him a sly smile and said, Minister Hoffman, I think we can agree on one thing. You aren't allowed to come back. <laughs> Oli laughed and thanked him for the compliment. The live audience applauded, and while they all clasped arms and laughed, clearly there were no hard feelings among the panel. The next day, the episode was splashed across the system's news broadcasts and the social broadnets. Political commentators from all five major parties debated Oli's points, and several said that maybe the Alithian Alliance was the fresh voice that the Empire needed. <laughs> Fast forward to the eve of the election. We attended a watch party at the Samcoma House Library. Since Nikki enjoys history, we thought it would be fun for him to join us. Before the event started, Nikki took his sacred oaths under the House Rules and Rights with Grandma Vera. Like the girls before him, Nikki took it very seriously. Then Vera opened the house chamber doors, and Nikki stared in wonder at all of the hanging banners and ancient weaponry inside the massive private chamber. Vera even allowed him to place his hand on the Stoffelsten. Afterwards, we took him into the house library, where Vera, of course, 
was her usual proud grandma talking up Nikki's school achievements. Everyone was quick to comment on how Nikki was so much like Bjorn, with his playful banter, self-confidence, and his good looks. This only made Nikki stand even taller, because he idolizes his father. Well, everyone was getting drinks and mingling when the vid screens flashed with an election announcement. Jaimevina and Veron's seats remained roughly the same, with the majority still firmly with the Alithian alliance. Yasna, which always splits between the protectionists and the centrists, also remained nearly the same. They started to read out the Ghanama results, and I still remember Lee for Lana sighing loudly and saying that he needed a stronger drink if he was going to watch the traditionalists win again. But then, the traditionalists lost several key seats in major districts to both the Federation Party and the Alithian Alliance. The Ghanam account was close, but the good news was that the traditionalists had lost their supermajority. Finally, the news commentators announced Alondra's results, and the majority of the votes went to the Alithian Alliance. We all sat there stunned. The news commentators began discussing the traditionalist upset. Not all House members hold the same political affiliation. In fact, I would say that most of the Alithian Houses are members of the Federation Party. Those of us who support the Alithian Alliance did not start cheering, but quietly acknowledged our delight. I happened to be standing next to Oli, who clinked my glass with his, and said, You did say we had to win before making grand plans. I laughed, and I asked if he and Landon Kadri staged a televised debate. Oli blushed and said, Let's just say, you are not the only one with a mentor. I knew exactly who he was talking about, and I looked towards my grandma Vera, who lifted her glass at us and winked. A few days before the session began, the Samcoma representatives returned to Alondra to be sworn in. My entire family was up in the house gallery. Now, in her role as Shadow Minister, Helena Uckland began the session with her farewell remarks as the outgoing speaker. Her speech was eloquent and focused on compromise. Helena welcomed Renata Bailing, the leader of the Alithian Alliance, to the dais. Both women clasped arms, and Helena passed Renata the Samcoma cudgel. After Helena left the dais, Renata smiled and thanked Helena for her long service to the Empire. And then she said that while she would be honored to serve as the speaker of the Samcoma, she knew that she was not the right leader for the Empire, and said that she wanted to nominate my grandmother Vera to the position. As I mentioned last time, there are no rules against voting in a non-Samcoma representative as speaker. According to history, it hasn't been done in a couple of thousand years. The downside to choosing someone other than the ruling party's leader is that the entire Samcoma has to vote on the new nominee. The nominee would have to win two-thirds majority of the vote. The Alithian Alliance had just won with a supermajority, so Vera had a very good start. After the first vote, the Samcoma Herald called out, The votes have been counted. Please welcome the new speaker of the Samcoma, Vera Jorgensen of Haimovina. When Vera joined Renata on the dais and was handed the cudgel, it was such an amazing moment. My grandmother looked like she was born to be the speaker as she stood there. 
Her opening remarks were lovely, as she resigned her position as senior minister to Haimavina and thanked the Samkoma for their faith in her. She welcomed all the new members and swore them in. And finally, she looked up at the house gallery and said that her family was why she was standing there. My grandfather Mikkel looked so proud, while my dad's eyes were streaming with happy tears like mine. And then she said, I promise to protect the empire as if you were part of my family. And Vera held up her right palm, dropped into a backwards fist, and pounded her fist to her left shoulder, which in our ancient family cant means, House Jorgensen salutes you. The Samkoma stood and applauded again. Later that month, Haimavina held a special election for the position of senior minister, and Representative Ben Kios was elected. Ben had tough opponents, but Vera endorsed him and touted his achievements and long working relationship with Vela. After the election, Mari's dad, Loris, who was Ben's chief of staff, was offered the new position as the director of the Office of Velen Affairs with the Ministry of Diplomacy. Isn't that great? Loris ran Ben's office for over 40 years and is well respected among all of the political parties, not to mention the Velen Council. His appointment was well deserved. Loris recently joked with me that maybe this will get him that trip to Vela that he was robbed from last time. <laughs> hey, Mom? <laughs> oh, hang on. Mom? Yes, sweetie? Can, can I have another hour on the, on the game system, please? Your father said one hour, an hour ago. Yeah, I, I know, but like, I'm, I'm right in the middle of this. My, I'm on pause and my friends are waiting and we're like, we're right in the middle of this thing. We'll go ask him. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Does Nasu shop which parent will give the better answer? The girls never tried this tactic. They just whined until I gave in. Nikki, on the other hand, is really testing our boundaries this year. I don't know how Raythea and Reese raised four boys. I can barely handle one. His biggest act of rebellion started one evening when we arrived home from work to find Nikki in the kitchen opening up several cans of toonfisk. He told us he had a lot of assignments and scurried back to his room with his snack. Neither of us thought anything of it because he's always hungry and is growing like a weed. In fact, he's taller than me now. <laughs> a little later, Nikki joined us in the kitchen and helped make dinner, something he hardly ever does. During dinner, Nikki was his usual chatty self, telling us about his day at school, and then he asked me if I wanted to chaperone his class's next history field trip. This was a first, because he always asked his granddad Nikolai, so I was excited. Then Nikki insisted that he clean up and told us to both go relax and enjoy our vin in the great room. We were immediately suspicious and assumed that he either failed an exam or more likely broke something expensive. I won't even go into the time he made a makeshift swing with a rope and his ceiling fan. <laughs> he was grounded for a week. Anyway, sitting on the sofa, waiting for Nikki to give us his bad news, Bjorn began to complain that his eyes had been itching all evening. When the seasons change from winter to var and the Kirsika trees around town are in full bloom, Bjorn's allergies are the worst. I was about to go get his allergy medication, when out of nowhere, a small white cat 
which shocks of amber fur jumped into Bjorn's lap. I think Bjorn and I both shrieked in shock. Okay, I may have actually screamed, because cats still look like tiny ice lions to me. (laughs) The little cat flopped down on Bjorn's lap and purred loudly. Nikki appeared in the great room, nearly out of breath, and quickly started telling us about how one of his friend's cats had a litter, and they let him have one. Bjorn sneezed loudly as he moved the little cat from his lap and reminded Nikki that he was allergic. Nikki made huge promises about how he would take care of the cat. The cat crawled back into Bjorn's lap and rubbed its entire body against him. (laughs) Poor Bjorn's eyes had become puffy, and as he moved the cat off of him again, quietly growled, Nikolai Rowan. The answer is no. Bjorn stalked out of the room to administer himself an injection of his allergy medication. (laughs) Nikki stood there with his head down, cuddling the cat. I walked over, and I asked him if I could hold the little cat. Nikki handed it over and mumbled that its name was Blaze. Blaze curled right into my arms and began to purr. I told Nikki that Blaze was really very cute and would probably be a good pet, but we had to take him back. After we returned Blaze, we found Bjorn laying on the sofa with a wet rag over his eyes. Bjorn's eyes were still red, but he was feeling better. Nikki apologized to his dad, which Bjorn accepted, and told them next time to ask for permission instead of forgiveness. <laughs> well, Nikki really did want me to be a parent chaperone for his history class. It wasn't just to butter me up. This field trip was really cool, because his professors took his class to the original Veron port of entry and settlement outside of Tallina. It's now a museum and a memorial park, with large stones engraved with the names and crimes of all the original people who were sent to Viron when it was a penal colony. While there were some egregious crimes listed, most did not justify such a harsh punishment. What we did notice was that nearly all of the names were Yothian, including some Parks and tons of Laurelins. The tour guide discussed that even with the incredible technological advancements at the time, these settlers were only given temporary makeshift shelters, a gray cloak, and a week's worth of rations. It was similarly described as what Heimavina endured right after the Citus Onda. The settlers who survived soon founded a town, which eventually became modern-day Talina. They also created a sort of black market with other Yothians, who would smuggle supplies or refugees on spacecraft from the central planets, and even Heimavala Prime. We learned that these settlers had a secret cant among each other and used different code words on shipboard comms, which are still used today in the fleet. We also toured the secret landing pads. Jason, it was fascinating. You would have loved it, especially as a pilot. They showed vids of how the spacecraft had to maneuver under radar in between steep mountain ranges and oftentimes through blinding snowstorms. Nikki begged me for the flight simulator game they were selling at the museum shop. The game mimics these secret routes, terrain, and weather. When we got home, Nikki was so excited to learn from his father that he was related to several of these smugglers. 
Bjorn told him about how one of his ancestors would fly to Alondra under a false name. She and her crew smuggled medical supplies, seeds, and alcohol to Viron. Because of this revelation, Team Night Dragon officially changed their name to Ivar's Revenge, in honor of the name of the spacecraft. <laughs> Mom, are you talking to Uncle Jason? Oh, excuse me, Jason. Yes, Nikki. Can you remind him to send me his scores on the flight simulator? I have not forgotten. I will ask him. I've attached a copy of the flight simulator game for you from Nikki. Nikki would like you to use the race with friends feature, which records your races. Then send those back to us so he can play against you. <laughs> you are in good company as he has already dragged in Erico and Aunt Juniper. The first time he beat Aunt Juniper, he accused her of going easy on him because she slowed down several times during the race so he could catch up. Aunt Juniper grinned and said, Okay, kiddo, put down that visor. The gloves are off now. Poor kid has been trying to beat her time for months. <laughs> well, Calista and Easton opted for a short engagement and held their wedding last summer before the start of Easton's football season. Calista said that she always loved how romantic and impromptu our wedding was, but she really wanted a more traditional ceremony like her older sister's. We, of course, told them they could have whatever they wanted. When Raythea heard about the engagement, she insisted that Callista and I meet her for lunch the next time we were on Alondra, because she wanted to help. After a lovely meal, Raythea pulled out her portable desk and said that she already secured a florist, photographers, a wedding gown, and a planner. Then she forwarded me her guest list. I swear, Jason, there was almost a thousand names. While scanning through the list, I sarcastically asked her if there was anyone left in town who wasn't going to be invited to the wedding. Raythea squinted at me and said that she didn't want to offend anyone again. I rolled my eyes, and I thought, here we go again, because she was still mad that Andy and I cut our wedding guest list down to family and close friends after that faithful house summit. Raythea told Callista that she also secured the Newberry Botanical Gardens in Brengard for them. The Newberry Botanical Gardens was one of the girls' favorite places as children, but I knew that she and Easton wanted to get married on Viron because that is where they met. When I mentioned that to Raythea, she gave me a tight smile and reminded me that both kids were a laundron, so it only seemed right that they marry on their homeworld. I looked over at my sweet daughter, and all she did was shrug her shoulders. At that moment, I wanted to slap Raythea again, because that wasn't fair to Callista. I held Callista's hand, and I asked her, speaking in Velen, what she really wanted. My daughter smiled at me, and then she said to her grandma Raythea that everything sounded great, except she intended to wear her grandma Frida's wedding gown. A few weeks before the wedding extravaganza, I came home to a quiet house for a change, and I had just put my bag down when I noticed Easton sitting out by the pool. I went outside, and I sat on the pool lounger next to him. I asked him if he wanted me to make him anything to eat, and Easton looked over at me with his deep lavender eyes and shook his head. After raising four kids, I know when it's time just to listen. 
so I waited for him to open up when he felt comfortable. I didn't have to wait long. Easton told me that his birth parents were fleet officers, who enjoyed a weekend of drunken shore leave together. A few weeks before their next mission, his mother discovered that she was pregnant. I had heard this story before from his father's. They told Bjorn and I that they had met Easton's birth parents at the Adoption Foundation before he was born. They were very kind people, but they weren't a couple, and they knew they could not raise a baby the way he deserved with their active military careers. I asked Easton what was on his mind, and he told me that his fathers asked him if he wanted to add his birth parents to the guest list, but he wasn't sure he wanted to meet them. Easton said that he would always be grateful to his birth parents for choosing him such a loving household. Because of them, he had lived all over the Alithian system, followed his dreams, and met Callista. I said that he had a couple of choices, but that it sounded like he had already made his decision. And he smiled and said, I've never had a mom, but I felt like I got one with you. Thanks, Mama CJ. And then he kissed my forehead and got up. And I heard him call his dads and tell them that he didn't want his birth parents at his wedding because the only parents he wanted in the front row were the amazing fathers who raised him. Clista and Easton wanted to do all the mana traditions, including the ritual cleansing, the sealing under Linnea, and of course, the stag party. <laughs> the kids went on a bar crawl around Talina's waterfront. Astra and Ragna sent me pictures throughout their night of hijinks. No arrest, but I heard the hangovers were pretty bad. <laughs> A week later, it was the big day, and we all stayed at the hotel across the street from the gardens. We reserved Callista a big three-bedroom suite so she and her sisters could enjoy a lazy morning, like I did with Mari and Heather before my wedding to Andy. We stayed in a two-bedroom suite down the hall with Nikki. Because Nikki had his own room, he insisted on a sleepover with Marcus, little Lars, and Chris. In the morning, I found the four boys passed out around the room from an epic night of room service, late-night vids, and video games. <laughs> oh, to be 12 again. <laughs> After getting the other boys back to their parents so we could all get ready, I was zipping myself into my strapless formal gown when I caught Bjorn smiling at me through the mirror's reflection. He looked so handsome in a formal black suit, pale gray tie, and his long hair neatly brushed back. I told him he looked too young to be the father of a bride, and he laughed as he walked over to me and began to kiss my bare shoulder. I closed my eyes, and I told him that we were going to be late if he continued, when I realized he was distracting me as he placed a necklace around my neck. I opened my eyes to see several thin strands of cascading black diamonds. He slid his arms around me and said, I thought the mother of the bride deserved something special. Bjorn and I were in the middle of a kiss when the bedroom door swung open. We both turned to see Nicky in his black formal suit, struggling to fold his pale gray tie into a knot. Bjorn sighed and reminded Nicky to knock before entering our room. Nicky looked up and sassily said, I did. Besides, it's nothing I haven't seen before. You guys are always kissing. Bjorn walked over to him and began to help him with his tie. While I mentioned that he was lucky to have parents that still loved each other, Nikki rolled his eyes the same way I do and mumbled, Yeah, I know, 
You guys tell me all the time how I was made from love. <laughs> I was still laughing when I made it to the girls' suite. The Laurelin sisters were already there, sitting on the sofas, giggling with the girls. Apparently, they all had a sister's morning brunch. <laughs> I told everyone that it was time to get ready. We all helped Callista into my mom's soft blue wedding gown, and then we attached an intricate corset-like belt with the Park dagger. I clipped on the Jorgensen family cloak around her shoulders. I remember I stood back, and I watched all the sisters fawn all over Callista and place a flower crown on her head. She looked so beautiful. Janine came over to me and asked me how I was doing. And I knew why, she asked. And I told her that I was good. And then she said, You may technically be my stepmom, but you will always be my bestie. So, if you need me to slap the skit out of Raythea, <laughs> I got you, sister. <laughs> she winked at me, and I laughed out loud. <laughs> After everyone was ready, Galen's mom, Shauna, Bjorn, and Nikki joined us because it was time to give Callista her marriage trinkets before the ceremony. I handed Callista the black diamond ring that Andy gave me as a trinket from her mother. Ragna and Astra attached the sisterhood bracelet they made with the Laurelin sisters around her wrist as a token from her best friends. Callista got to wear Shauna's diamond earrings as a token from another mother. And I thought Bjorn was going to turn into a puddle when he reached into his pocket and placed Hera's fieldstone in her hand as a trinket from her father. Bjorn told Callista that my dad and him wanted her to carry Hera's fieldstone as it has brought them both luck and Nikki wanted his big sister to carry something from him. So he took off the rune amulet that he wears around his neck that means love, and he put it around her neck. <laughs> As we all headed down to the gardens, I received a message from Easton's father, Varian, that Easton needed to talk to me and Bjorn. I did not want to scare Callista, so made an excuse that the wedding planner needed us. I had no idea why Easton would ask for us minutes before marrying our daughter. As Bjorn and I rushed to his room, we quietly discussed where we were going to bury his body if he broke our baby girl's heart. When we got to his room, Varian opened the door, and his eyes were puffy like he had been crying. He sensed our anxiety and quickly held up his hands and said, Oh, no, 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 it's not that. I'm just super emotional today. He escorted us to the bedroom where Kothir was helping Easton into an Alondran high-collar coat over his traditional Lithian suit. Easton grinned at us and said, Oh, great! You both are here! I was hoping to ask you both for a favor. Easton hugged his dad and then walked over to me and held my hand and asked, Like I told you, you're the closest mom I have, so may I hold a trinket from you? and I immediately covered my mouth, and I tried very hard not to flood. I nodded my head, and I slipped off the pearl ring you gave me, and I handed it to Easton. I told Easton about the ring, and how it was from you. He hugged and thanked me. He immediately pulled off his rune amulet necklace, and slid the ring through the chain, and placed it back under his suit. Easton then turned to Bjorn, and said that instead of holding a trinket from another mother, he wanted to hold something from another father. 
and Bjorn smiled and reached into his pocket and placed Ivar's fieldstone in his hand. Easton closed his hand around it and asked how it was so warm. And Bjorn told him that Callista was holding its pear, and what he was feeling was her heart. Easton closed his eyes, and the biggest smile spread across his face. And there was something so pure in knowing that he was sending love to our daughter. Kothir and Varian, on the other hand, stood there, mouths agape. Varian finally whispered, I thought the fieldstone was lost the night Ivar died. And I realized that outside of the family, no one knows that we have Hera and Ivar's pair of fieldstones. Bjorn explained the story of how he found Ivar's stone, and how he figured out how he had the set. And Varian shook his head like he was remembering something, and said, Hera and Ivar's fieldstones were made by the seer Radaria herself. She was said to have connected their souls through the stones, which was why Hera and Ivar always knew their souls would find each other again. Have either of you ever been to a seer? <laughs> I just smiled up at Bjorn, who winked at me. <laughs> and I looked over at Easton, who wasn't even listening to all of us, because he was still standing there, with his eyes closed, holding the stone against his chest. <laughs> After all of that excitement, we finally made it down to the gardens. Bjorn and I found Callista, and told her that Easton had the stone, and she beamed and said that she already knew. We all hugged again and found our seats with the rest of the wedding guests. I promised myself I wasn't going to cry, but when the music began and I watched Nikki escort Callista to her spot, I felt the tears well up. <laughs> the ceremony was truly beautiful, and Bjorn was his usual mess, but he was in good company, as Easton's fathers were blubbering messes too. When Callista and Easton cut their hands on the Jorgensen sword and atoned their vows, I tightly squeezed Bjorn's hand. I couldn't believe it. One of my babies was now married. The reception was held by the garden's bluffs that overlooked Brengard Bay and went long into the night. Easton's Fitbolta team joined the Vinstrasse brothers, Rune's brothers, and Kai in some crazy dance routine. Honestly, it would not be a wedding in my family if the guys didn't draw attention to themselves. <laughs> Aster and Ragna had a surprise for their sister, and my mom joined the two of them on stage. While my mom and Astra played the guitar, Ragna sang Callista's favorite love song. And finally, Easton gave this beautiful speech about how it was just him and his fathers moving from one post to another around the system, and how the three of them were all they had. But today... They all gained a family. <laughs> and guess what? I have to do this all over again, because after we returned to Haimavina, Astra proposed to Galen. It was actually really sweet. She took him to the cafe shop where they had their first kiss. She told us that they want to wait until after they pass their law exams, but are thinking of a small wedding on Haimavina with only family and close friends. I told her, we will have to see what her grandmother Rathia thinks about that. <laughs> Astra did tell me to tell you to keep a lookout for an invitation. <laughs> well, I know you have heard about Heather and Max's new baby girl, Celeste Thora Fjallstad. And yes, as you saw from the many hospital pictures and vids, I was their gestational surrogate. 
As you know, Max and Heather tried for years to get pregnant. But even with Alithian medical advancements, nothing worked. Their first daughter, Poppy, was born via gestational surrogacy. But they really wanted another baby, and they finally asked me if I was still willing to carry for them. I checked with my obstetrician, and she said I was the perfect age and in great shape to be their carrier. Several weeks after the wedding, when we were all back on Hymavina, Heather and Max joined me at my obstetrician's office as their embryo was implanted by my doctor. Having been pregnant three times already, I knew what to expect. Bjorn was stressed for me, but he was incredibly supportive. It wasn't like carrying one of my own, but at the same time, the joy I felt growing this little life for my cousins was incredible. Every night, I would tell her stories about her parents, and Bjorn and I would tell her how much she was already loved. Of course, being pregnant, we had long talks about how we regretted not having another baby after Nikki. There were a few times that we did consider changing our minds, especially when we'd feel Celeste kick. As much as we would love another baby, Bjorn has now raised seven children, and truth be told, while this pregnancy was easy, it still took a lot out of me. We are happy with our choice, especially as we are entering the teenage years with Nikki. <laughs> Linnea, help us. (laughs) Heather and Max's daughter, Poppy, was so excited. Anytime she would see me, she would sing a new song to my belly. It was adorable. Heather and Max were the best, and were always making sure I had extra pillows when I sat, touching my belly, but they also monitored my diet like an ice lion. (laughs) Look, in my defense, I do eat fairly healthy, due to my husband's strict dietary practices. But yes, I have known to treat myself to the occasional sugary elger ear, or enjoy a rich peppermint cafe. The first time Heather caught me making those delicious multas your mom taught me, she stood there, hands on her hips, and said, You're making those for the kids, right? I told Heather her baby was craving them and she shouldn't deny her child such a delicious treat. Heather went on to tell me how sugary they were and how I was not allowed to have more than one square. By the way, I had two. One for me and one for Celeste. (laughs) Unlike her sister Poppy, Celeste arrived a week late. I guess someone was quite comfortable in her living accommodations. But trust me, by then... I was ready to evict her. (laughs) Bjorn and Max held my hands during the delivery, and my obstetrician allowed Heather to deliver her child. Heather, an obstetrician herself, has delivered tons of babies, but she said delivering her own was the most magical moment of her life. As you can see in the pictures, Celeste was born with a full head of hair, the Fjallstad bright golden eyes, and these perfect plump lips. (laughs) The first time I held my little cousin, I asked her, So, you're the one who's been dancing on my bladder. (laughs) I would like to pretend that she giggled at me. (laughs) I will tell you, it's way easier to recover from pregnancy when you're not waking up every couple hours to feed a newborn from your own body. Although, I will admit that the emotional side has been tougher than I expected, and several nights I missed the comfort of holding a newborn against me. I just remind myself that Celeste is my cousin, so I will always be part of her life. 
Heather and Max held her naming ceremony at the Fialsat estate last weekend, and it was her first time meeting everyone. We all gathered around the bassinet and tied ribbons with good fortunes written on it. Heather said that she and Max wanted to name her for someone who helped her bring her to life. And when they said that she would be named Celeste, I started to cry happy tears. Heather and Max said they could not thank me enough for giving them this gift, and I told them that they would have done the same for me. Usually at naming ceremonies, the baby is not held due to superstition. But Heather is a Fialstad, and they always scoff at tradition. Celeste was held by everyone, and didn't get fussy, just giggled and slept in people's arms. Nikki was so excited when it was his turn to hold her, and Heather told him that Celeste was his honorary little sister. (laughs) He loved that. (laughs) As I watched my dad cradle Celeste, I remembered that he too was born via gestational surrogacy. As you know, my grandmother Vera had a miscarriage and could not conceive another baby. My dad's embryo was created from both my grandparents, and my granddad Mikkel's cousin carried my dad. I smiled to myself thinking, like the Velens, these beautiful people were also created in a laboratory. Then I noticed Easton playing with Nikki out on the lawn, and I realized that these kids were both conceived by surprise. For me and Bjorn, having a baby together was an incredible blessing, but Easton's birth parents had a much harder choice. I don't know what I would have done if I was in their position, but they decided to give him the best shot to find his own way. And if you think about it, those monitors Dana and Limo did the same for the Valens. In many ways, all lives are experiments, and it doesn't matter how a soul is awakened when we take that first breath. Now, Jason, if you were one of my kids, I would tell you that you have two choices. You can allow this knowledge to undermine your sense of self and go into a panic. Or, you can embrace your existence and take charge of your fate. But, as I said to my new son-in-law, I think I already know what choice you will make. (laughs) Love always. CJ, age 70. You have been listening to an episode of Binary Saga. The part of CJ was played by Vanessa Shannon Anderson. The part of Jason has been played by Steve Petricelli. Phi is voiced by Justin Nozick. Pei was TC. Limo is Stevie Carpenter. Dana is Heather Carpenter. Enix Zarin was Andrew Hurlbert. Music by Eric Matias and soundimage.org. Thank you to our Patreon members, Rob and Mary Carnahan, Samantha, and Dr. Layla. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting our Patreon page, which can be found in the Where to Find Us menu on our website. We have multiple levels of support with a lot of fun special features like transcripts and photos. Or if you want to just donate to our Cafe, Bjor, or Sidrus funds, it's always appreciated. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook with at TheBinarySaga. Want to ask us questions? You can join us on Discord for open chat. Find all of these links and more information at BinarySaga.com. 
You can also read the print version of the entire first and second season in Kindle or paperback on Amazon. These versions include a number of extra stories and background information. Just search for The Binary Saga.